Welcome to the Tax Girl Podcast, your home for tax news, tax info, and tax policy. In each episode, I'll share conversations about taxes, money, and the choices we make. I'm your host, Kelly phillips Herb, Tax Girl. I'm a tax attorney, and I work with taxpayers and tax practitioners like you every day. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. From work from home to deductions to Wayfair, it's clear that state and local taxes, or SALT for short, have become critical in the tax world. While I think the focus used to be squarely on federal tax for tax professionals, many are now giving SALT a second look. To talk about what's happening and why SALT is so key, I've asked Jamie Zoll to the show. Jamie is a tax attorney at Brand & Isaacson, where she focuses on assisting businesses with state and local tax controversy matters from audits and administrative proceedings through civil litigation. She's a graduate of Trinity College and earned her JD from Northeastern University School of Law. And she earned her LLM in taxation and certification in state and local taxation, both with distinction from Georgetown University Law Center. Jamie is also trained in mediation. Thank you so much, Jamie, for being on the show today. Thanks, Kelly. It's been a pleasure. Uh, looking forward to this conversation. Awesome. Well, I'm really excited because for a lot of reasons. One is, again, <laughs> I, th- I think that a lot more people are looking at SALT now in ways they didn't before. So I'm going to talk about that a little later. Yeah. But to get us started, I want to know a little bit more about your background because mm. I noticed that your BA was in international studies, like specifically Middle East and Africa, which sounds amazing. But it's hardly yeah. an indicator that you're going to be uh, interested in state and locals. So, like, how did that transition happen? Yeah, you know, if you'd asked me in college if I knew I was going to be a tax lawyer, I would have said you're nuts. Oh, same. Because I was like, taxes? Who wants to talk about taxes? So here's kind of the evolution of that. And in my mind, it's some kind of some zigs and zags, but it all makes sense in, in my own retroactive hindsight kind of way. So I went into college right in the immediate aftermath of September 11th. And I really wanted to learn a lot more kind of about the history, the socioeconomics, the politics, the culture of that, of the Middle Eastern region. And and it was kind of Middle East and North Africa was my focus in college. I'm a person who really likes context, right? Mm -hmm. I, I like to learn about a whole situation before I make a judgment call on whatever it is. And, and so that was, my goal in, in learning all of about that region. And I loved the fact that, you know, we weren't using textbooks for this. We were like reading the newspaper every day because things were shifting so quickly at that time. Yeah. Um, it's a, um, a common theme being in a place that shifts quickly for my <laughs> life. But at college, I also took a bunch of public policy classes that were focused on constitutional law. And that's where I got bit by the con law bug. I had a, a beloved professor who unfortunately passed away several years ago. And he just, he got me hooked. I, I loved it. And I started thinking, oh, well, how can I pursue a career in constitutional law? Like, how can I make this happen? But at that time, I was still in this focus. I tried to go into intelligence. Or I shouldn't say tried. I wanted to go into intelligence work. I thought that's where I wanted to like, like naturally CIA. take my degree. Oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Cool. And I went through interview process. I made it quite far down the path in that with one particular agency. And right at the very end, what I thought was my last chance to like make a decision, yes or no, I went down for 
what I thought was a second run of interviews. It turns out I was going down for a new employee orientation and didn't realize it. Oh, wow. And I had this like moment where I was like, this is not the right decision for me. This is not the right path. And I turned the job down and went back to sitting. I was still senior in college at the time, went back to my dorm room and said, you know, I, I want to learn more. Again, context. I want to learn more about like, what was the, why was this agency allowed to do some of the things that it did through my background check process? And what, what gives it the authority to do that? And kind of what is the, what are the parameters for the intelligence work? And, and this was in that like era of post 9-11, where if you remember a lot of the congressional hearings were like, okay, well, how do we get the intelligence community to like start talking to each other Mm -hmm. internally, domestic intelligence (laughs) agencies. So I went from that into law school right away. And while I was in law school, I did an internship at the SEC and discovered that, oh, I really like this kind of controversy world where you're, you know, you're looking with hindsight. It's a little bit like litigation. You have context creative arguments and you're there's numbers. So like there's a right answer at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And went from that to NASDAQ and was in NASDAQ during the market crash of 2008. That was a fascinating time to be there. Like we were just sitting there waiting for that, you know, the call on the red phone is at least in my memory on a Friday in October. I don't know what it is about Fridays in October, about like Black Friday, the market is crashing, but. Yeah, yeah. No, historically, that is really interesting. And it was was another Friday in October in 2008. And from there went to and did my final internship at the Department of Revenue in Massachusetts. And that was where I discovered it was like this perfect marriage. It was constitutional law. You know, everything is drawn out of the Commerce Clause and nexus and due process. And you're arguing the Constitution all day long, which I think is what the biggest differentiator between SALT and federal work is Mm -hmm. you have that whole constitutional component built right in. And what I liked about the controversy side of the SEC and NASDAQ, you know, the numbers, there is some analytics, there's a bit of hindsight that you're looking at it. Now, to go back to that question of context, for me, it's you've got the COD law. And the thing I love about SALT is that it's so context specific. You're really dependent on the industry that the business is in, the time period, the tax periods that you're looking at, the tax type that you're looking at. And no one question is ever going to be the same because of all those contextual key pieces that you have to keep in mind. Like I said about things constantly changing, you know, heck, the last three and a half years post Wayfair, it's been like the Wild West in the salt world. It's just changing every week, constant, constant, constant. And God, I love it. So that's awesome. <laughs> that's where you get. <laughs> but I also, so that kind of leads to another question about like timing and career paths. It's it's very interesting to me because it's very highly changing area. There's also a lot of very specific information that you have to know. Do you ever get overwhelmed by it? Because it is, it does strike me as the kind of thing, I mean, federal, so federal is hard because it's changing, right? Like all of the time, but there's also technically just one book, right? Like we have, there's case, I I got it, case law and regs and all of that, but like, it's the code. You're looking at not only the individual state, but also the local components, which um, I know that you're you're up in the Northeast. I'm in Mid-Atlantic. These regions in particular have a lot of really funky local laws, whereas some other states don't have to grapple with that. How do you make it all work? Like, do you find it overwhelming at times? Because it's, it's got to be 
you know, we joke in the federal world, it's impossible to know everything. It has to be the same in salt. Yeah. You know, and if you look by any measure, there's upwards of 10,000 tax jurisdictions in the United States. And that's when you start to include things like local property um, Mm -hmm. jurisdictions. And, And we don't do property taxes and stuff, but it's mind boggling how complex it can get, how quickly. We're not talking just 50 states in DC. You think about Colorado alone, a, a single sales tax return in Colorado is either 150 pages long, a single return, mm-hmm. or if you do the spreadsheet route, you're looking at a spreadsheet that's 1,700 lines long. Which is crazy. For one tax return. Um, it is crazy. And I think the I can understand my clients' concerns or frustrations when there's almost no uniformity to stay in city to city to city. And there could be no uniformity between the city and the state itself in terms of what is taxable, what's included in the income tax return, what is the tax based on. So can it get overwhelming? Yeah, it can get overwhelming really, really quickly. The state part of what you just mentioned is really fascinating to me about how it's not any conformity because a lot of my practice, as I, I mentioned in our, you and I were chatting for a minute before the interview actually started, and I mentioned I do some international work. And a lot of our clients that come over here, especially we do a lot of like Western Europe clients, and they're always fascinated by our states mm. because with the EU, even though they're separate countries, there's still some uniformity, right? So they still like, there's some things that make sense to them. I'm in Pennsylvania where you go to Jersey, it's a whole different world. You go to Delaware, it's like a whole different country. And so they're always fascinated how you can literally drive, in some cases, 30 minutes and the whole world changes from a tax perspective. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, it is. And I'm fond of saying on LinkedIn, tax policy is social policy in action. And and you see that state to state to see in just what are the different taxes that you're even talking about? You know, that's a big conversation that I'm having with a lot of my clients right now because of remote working and because they're they're finally allowing their employees to kind of spread beyond the home-based state of the company and just trying to get a handle on, are we talking about one or two different taxes that we're taking on as a company? Or are we talking about five different types of taxes that you know are eating into the bottom line? Is that a lot of your work right now, that remote work from home issues? Probably every day I'm fielding a call about it right now. Okay. Just a lot of my clients, and this kind of going back to tying in all those different tax types together in the pre-Wayfair world, and Wayfair, for your listeners who don't know the case, this was you know in 2018, it was like the internet tax case that everybody was talking about, or the Amazon tax case. It's not Amazon, but that really, it upended 50 years of constitutional theory in the salt world, and it opened the doors for states to go after businesses that didn't have a physical presence in their state um, anymore to have them comply with different tax laws on the basis of their sales levels in the state. And so pre-Wayfair, a lot of my clients were very conscientious about where they had a physical footprint. Mm -hmm. And physical footprint, you know, most notoriously outside of like your office or your storefront is your people. Where are your employees working? So a lot of businesses just weren't open to the idea of remote employees because of, you know, care and concern about nexus footprints. And post-Wayfair, where economic nexus is kind of the rule of thumb most places these days, that concern is a little less intimidating than it was before. 
So yeah, we, we are having conversations and it's not like a one size, I mean, again, back to that constant variety in, in the salt world, it's no one size fit all kind of prediction or counsel for any business. It, it depends on what are the roles and responsibilities of, of the employees? Where are they going to be based? Is there going to be any sort of like outside of the house office for employees? How many of them are going to be there? It makes it exciting. <laughs> sure. I'm one, I love to like research. I love to do puzzles. I often will tell the interns that come in here, salt is the perfect tax world for people who like to constantly be learning, but don't want to go back and get another degree because <laughs> so, you're just constantly having to look stuff up all the time. Yeah, no, I would think it would be very, very research intensive. It is. Yeah, yeah, it is. So you mentioned Wayfair earlier and obviously Wayfair, as, as you said, it kind of changed everything. <laughs> There's a lot of discussion now about how things are still changing with respect to Wayfair. Do you have any kind of, uh, you know, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but do you have any thoughts generally about what might be happening with respect to the way we tax things? And just kind of piggybacking on that question, specifically, have you had any occasion to deal with the digital streaming tax and how that is is related to welfare? Oh, welfare. Yeah. Sorry, Wayfair. It's been that kind of day. Great question. So, you know, what we what we were starting to see right as the pandemic hit, um, and I think is going to accelerate now that, God, I don't even want to say post-pandemic, but now that we're slight, hopefully heading out of the <laughs> pandemic, was a shift away from sales taxes as the focus of these tax jurisdictions to other taxes where they can try to adopt or enforce this economic nexus theory for businesses and, and, you know, those other taxes that could, you know, the most predominant one that we think of is income taxes, but things like gross receipts taxes or franchise taxes as well. And we're starting to see that perk up among the states as well. North Carolina has been particularly aggressive against businesses on its franchise tax. So I do see, I do expect to see that continue, um, that effort among states to continue for better or for worse. The challenge for the states will be that there is, to bring up a word that you used a few minutes ago earlier in our chat, this idea of conformity and how the kind of federal code and federal statutes interact with the state tax world. And my con law love, I'm going to get hopefully not too down in the weeds, but some con law nerd language for your listeners. You know, the Commerce Clause we like to think has these kind of two different personalities, so to speak, the two aspects, the dormant commerce clause, which is everyone's favorite one to love to hate. And that's where most of the state tax standards come out of this dormant commerce clause. You know, when Congress has not actually taken any sort of action, then states can step into the void so long as they don't discriminate against interstate commerce is the general principle. But the other aspect, the kind of active aspect is when Congress does actually take action. And that's where we're seeing some tension right now because 50 years ago, Congress took action. It's called Public Law 86-272. Why it never got a like cutesy acronym um, like Congress is fond of, I will never know. But we all just call it PL 86-272. And it was a set of statutes that what it comes down to is that states are prohibited from imposing income tax obligations on out-of-state businesses if the only activity in state is solicitation for sales. It was enacted in the world of the traveling salesman. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. And so, you know, at that time, if all you had in a state was a traveling salesman, then the state could not impose income taxes on you. Well, that is still good law. And so, you know, we have this tension right now between states' efforts to enforce economic nexus. And, you know, in that world, if it's truly economic nexus, there is no activity in the state other than, you know, you have sold something to someone and it's being shipped into that state. And public law 86272 and what what does it still in fact protect you know i think from my perspective it's still very good law and there's a reason for it and but we're out, we're starting to also see some very significant efforts from states and from the multi-state tax commission in trying to dismantle if you will pl86272 you know the mtc most recently about a month and a half ago it's this organization that advocates for the state tax authorities. And it was one of the first, in fact, the MTC and PL 86272 are kind of tied hand and foot, right? The MTC was formed in the wake of that federal statute to interpret it, if you will, to provide some guidance on what PL 86272 means. And the MTC reissued its new interpretation of PL 86272 about a month and a half ago. And the most troubling from my client's perspective, from my perspective on the, the private sector and business side, is this conclusion that the MTC took, you know, effectively using a modern website means that you are acting in a state. Do you have a chat feature on your website? Or do you have kind of like hyperlink to email someone? Or, you know, do you use cookies? The like you know, MTC is the new cookie monster of right, the digital right. era. I know Massachusetts was really into the the cookie issue early on. Yes, yes, it is. I think um, it has shifted the mantle, if you will, to the MTC. And quite frankly, I just think it shows a lack of understanding of how websites operate or what it takes to engage in modern commerce these days. Mm-hmm. But we have yet to see states actively adopt this particular position, you know, ascribed to the MTC's policy, but I think it's coming. And I think that's going to generate some challenges and some litigation coming out. Well, one of the interesting things I think that we found that we weren't expecting is this notion that I think in a, I'm going to say post-pandemic as well, we're, we're going to go with post-pandemic. It's our optimistic thinking. Yes. Um, but in a post-pandemic world, We assumed, I think, across the board, that governments were going to be struggling for cash, right? Like everybody Mm, was going to be cash poor. And it turns out that people were shopping a lot from home and uh, that didn't happen. Do you think that that has slowed down or sped up or not affected at all the appetite that states might have for collecting revenue? Because I think we all assumed that states were going to be super aggressive, like coming out of the pandemic. And I haven't seen that, but maybe that's because I don't know where to look. Like, what do you think? You know, a year ago, even six months ago, that was my prediction. We were going to come into a very aggressive audit cycle. Mm-hmm. I still think it's coming, Okay, honestly, but for different reasons. Because a year ago and six months ago, I was saying we're going to have an aggressive audit cycle because state coffers were completely decimated in trying to support their local social services and public safety and public health because of the pandemic. And they needed to recoup those losses with new revenues from tax collection. Mm -hmm. From what we have seen, the budgets of states were not hit as badly as I think many of us assumed they were going to be. Right. But I do think states are still going to have an active audit cycle. And, And I think part of that is because of the Wayfair decision, we have not seen a very active audit cycle on the business side for the last several years. 
Mm-hmm. I think it's because states were still trying to grapple with how to roll out economic nexus and how to adopt these new policies and how to do it seamlessly or not in the case of some states. But now that they have rolled that out, I think we're going to start to go back and see the nexus audits, whether it's because of sales tax side economic nexus. We started to see some states like Ohio and Texas and Illinois, Maine, my home state for better or for worse, that are matching up the doles, if you will, the list of companies that registered when they registered and matching that back against the date the state began enforcing economic nexus. And they're auditing for that gap period. Those three states in particular are doing it very aggressively. But I also, New York is starting to send out notices. I very facetiously call them love letters <laughs> for pandemic nexus. You know, what we saw during the pandemic is that it was kind of six of one, half dozen of another in terms of states. Some of them took this like blinders on approach saying, We know that because of the pandemic, you have a lot of employees who are working remotely from home because of state of emergency orders, work from home orders, things like that due to a public health crisis. We're not going to treat that as nexus creating. And then other states like New York who said, we're going to give the same rules as we always did. And if you have an employee here because of the pandemic, well, you have nexus, pandemic or not. So New York is sending out letters to New York residents asking, who do you work for? Where is that company located? Where were you working during the pandemic? With the intention, from what we've been told, both to get after the personal income tax nexus of that individual and also to go after the corporate income tax of the employer because of New York's convenience of the employer test. And we know that that's happening right now. That's the first of the like pandemic-specific nexus audits that's coming. Mm -hmm. But I also think the post-pandemic nexus audits and audit cycle is coming. And you've mentioned audits a couple times in cycles. Mm-hmm. And then you've also mentioned that uh, you can tell that you, you have an affinity, I think, for litigation. How do you spend your day? Like, what do you like to do and what do you do mostly? Like, Because I, I will say that I think that SALT probably, as you've, I didn't realize this until now, but SALT probably lends itself a lot more towards litigation than I think federal tax. Because I think if you're a federal tax person, if you litigate, you tend to be a litigator, right? Like it's not something that you would go back and forth on. It sounds like you do a little of a lot. So what do you do mostly? Yeah, we do a bit of both. Um, I would say, you know, it's for the last post Wayfair, the last three and a half years, it's been a lot of strategic planning conversations, you know, with businesses who maybe were collecting tax and filing income taxes in two or three states who now have to grapple with 45 states plus all those local jurisdictions that we were talking about, figuring out where do they now have nexus? What do they sell that is taxable? And having the conversations strategically about, okay, so here's what your potential exposure is for the last six months or for the year and a half or whatever it is. We're now coming up on three years of enforcement activity from the states. Here's different ways you can look at triaging that potential exposure and how to get registered, like helping them get into compliance. That's been a lot of the conversation for the last three years. But you're right, we do just as much litigation as we do strategic planning. And when I think of litigation, it's perhaps a pretty expansive notion of it. I like to get involved with my my clients once they're under audit by a state or local jurisdiction. Um, And we go all the way through, I mean, my, my firm handled the Wayfair case. So we go all the way through the US Supreme Court if we have to in 
handling that appeal. Right. And the reason I like to get involved that early in the audit process is that in some ways it helps tee up the later appeal. I know what's being asked for. I know how it's being asked for. I know what is being delivered to the auditors. And I like to take the approach of kind of cleaning out the low-hanging fruit. Mm -hmm. You know, can we come to an agreement on what the numbers would be if my legal theory or your legal theory is right? So we're not fighting over, is it $5 or $10 or $5,000 or $500,000? We're just having a, a nerdy conversation of how do you interpret the law on the question? And then we, you know, we go from there. I would say the procedural side of SALT is just as varying as the taxes themselves. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. <laughs> so trying to figure out, you know, do you have two or three levels of internal appeal at the state agency before you move into the, you know, the court system? And at what stage are you moving into the court system? Are you going in at superior court or like you do in Oklahoma or in Missouri, or do you go in at the you know appeals court level like you do in, in New York or in Massachusetts? So constantly keeping you on your toes. It would be uh, probably involves a lot of networking, I'm assuming too, with other uh, you know attorneys in other jurisdictions uh-huh. and uh-huh. kind of figuring out all those local court rules. And yeah. so do you network with other people? Like how does that work? Because I know that one of the things that sometimes I have um have a lot of younger tax professionals that listen. And one of the things that I get asked a lot is well, it's changed. The question has changed. The first one used to be like, <laughs> how do I get to know older attorneys? Not, not that I'm implying that you're older. I'm just saying like experienced attorneys, right? Like somebody who's yes. been here longer than I have, like, how do you network them? And then secondly, the question now, it's something we've talked about on the program before. How do you do that under the current conditions? Cause yeah. you're not going to a bar conference right now. Right. So no. what do you tell people who have interest and how do you network with existing colleagues, not even just younger, younger colleagues, but you know, if you need to find someone in Oklahoma, like how do you go about doing that? That's, I think that's uh, something a lot of people would have interest in. Two different ways. And one, it goes back to how you and I connected, which is LinkedIn. It is such an incredible resource for lawyers. And, and I think of LinkedIn as kind of three different buckets, if you will, to use a word my one of my colleagues is fond of saying. Obviously, with every lawyer in private practice, you know, you're looking for clients. So there's, you know, I do pursue potential client contacts on LinkedIn. But I think of LinkedIn as like a big referral network and referral, not just people referring cases to me and work to me, but also when I need local counsel, because you're right, I am based in Maine, but I represent clients nationally. And if I have to go into court in Washington or in Illinois or in Arizona, I need local counsel there. Right. And um, because I need to be admitted pro hoc vice or whatever it is in order to continue representing my client. LinkedIn is a great resource for that. I'll give you one example. And and it doesn't have to be a tax professional, though that helps, right? If I I needed a local counsel in Georgia earlier this year and I reached out to other of my LinkedIn contacts that are in the Atlanta area and I said, can you connect me with a tax attorney in Atlanta because I need local counsel and I really need someone who has a good working relationship with the Department of Revenue. And we landed on a kind of a a really perfect contact that has been incredibly helpful. So I use LinkedIn for a lot of that networking. I love connecting with other women in tax because I think they're just not enough of us, quite frankly. Oh, agree. And so I actively go about trying to find other, you know, whether it's accountants or attorneys who are in that space. And that way we can have nerdy conversations about the tax world. Sure. And sure, about, yeah. you know, making sure that I would say I'm I'm the only woman in the room most of the time, but I'm actively working to hopefully see that change. I've said that before. I think that a lot of times because the tax world is so big, 
Yeah. I think sometimes with tax attorneys in particular, it's still very male oriented. And I also think, so I came an estates background and then transitioned to do more federal tax, federal and international. And one of the things I noticed really early on is that when I was going to Philadelphia State Planning Council meetings, there were a lot of women. When I was just going to tax supper club, there were not. Like there is very definitely a shift. And I'm hopeful that that keeps changing. Although I do wonder, like not to go too far off, uh, too far off topic, but I do wonder in the pandemic if that's not going to change. Because I do think that the burden on being, especially if you're a working mother, you know, being a parent and being a lawyer can be particularly challenging if you, don't, especially if you don't have childcare options. So I think that that might be slowing some of that growth. <laughs> you know what I saw? It was an interesting experience for me. I saw a lot more women in tax in the public sector. Than I do in the private sector. Okay. Is that normal hours, do you think? Like more regular hours? Maybe. I wouldn't say the flexibility per se, because when I was, this was pre pandemic, but when I was working for the Department of Revenue in Massachusetts, you weren't allowed to work from home yet. And the last year that I was there, they were just starting to roll that out. You had to, you were allowed to work one day a week from home and you had to get permission and you couldn't bring your laptop. I mean, there were so many restrictions on that. But I think it was the reliability of the schedule. Mm -hmm. And that was enticing, the good benefits that were enticing. I could see that. It certainly is a world of difference. I, I have to take my home laptop home with me now these days. In fact, I'm working from home most of the time now. Sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I think that's a big difference. I would love to see more women in tax in the private sector. I do what I can to kind of talk to law students and younger women about pursuing careers in tax, you know, to get back to your your question about, you know, how do you, how do younger lawyers who are thinking about a career in tax or younger professionals about a career in tax in general, um, you know, your alumni network is such a huge benefit. Mm-hmm. If you have any Georgetown listeners out there, I'm happy to talk to anyone <laughs> or even Northeastern about pursuing careers in tax because I, I really do want to see that needle move. I want to see more women at the table. I want to, I've had um, two trials my entire career. It has been all women on both tables, um, council and both council tables, which was awesome to be part of those trials. But I don't want that to be awesome anymore, if that makes sense. I want that to be more routine. I really hope that I'm an optimist by heart, but I really hope that what we're hearing about the effect of the pandemic on women in law in general is not as dire as a lot of people think it's going to be. I am a mom. I do have a young child at home. And so I, in a lot of networks of other women who are lawyers, and it has been incredibly difficult for working parents. And I think partly, well, we all know this, right? It's like all of the varying demands, whether it's homeschooling or the complete lack of childcare or the, the lack of sheer space. You know, you were just saying before we started recording the bandwidth of anybody's internet connection at home, sure, you know, things yeah. like that. I hope that it's not a as dire a detriment coming out as people think it's going to be. Yeah, I think it's just a matter of, on some level, of kind of figuring out what, and I hate this word, but what the balance looks like. Because, you know, we talk about it a lot, but it is really, it's really challenging. And I will say that during the pandemic, for example, even if you can make all the pieces work, like even if everything is moving correctly, I actually told my husband, he's also an attorney, I told him the other day, I forget the circumstance, but I think he was he was taking one of my my children on a college tour. And I mentioned that I didn't remember being alone 
for more than like an hour and a half outside of work for like a year and a half. And at some point, even if you make everything work, like sometimes you just also need a moment to yourself. I think that there's a lot of that that just can be overwhelming, especially when the thing about law is that you're not making a product. You're it's it's you, right? So like it's your thoughts, it's your strategy, it's your view of a case, it's your yep. ideas. And and sometimes if you don't have a minute to kind of take a breath and recharge, you get really exhausted because you also feel, and we've talked about this on the show before, not just women, but just with my um, other fellow tax colleagues, this idea that we've all felt so responsible for our clients over the last year and a half, especially like if you work with small business owners, like how are they doing? What's happening with them? What's happening with their business? How can you help? And it can be really exhausting to ask that question day after day, especially if you don't have any time for yourself. Yeah. And in the salt world, you know, I, I work predominantly with retailers and with digital service companies. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, for some businesses and some of my clients, they really took a hard hit in the pandemic. Mm-hmm. But for other of my clients, I mean, you said it earlier, we're all sitting at home boredom shopping online <laughs> and using Zoom all day long. And uh-huh. so, you know, it's been like gangbusters years for some of my clients. And I think it's it's that twofold, right? It's wanting to make sure that I am concerned and, and not wanting to make sure I am concerned about my my clients and how they're doing and how their their people are doing. Because right. yes, I, I work with businesses, but businesses are run by people. Mm-hmm. I want to make sure that the people that I work with are okay. Right. But also grappling with what has been kind of unexpected, massive years. And and that goes right back to what I was saying about those strategic thinking, strategic planning conversations. What do you do when you have a, an exponentially bigger year than you expected? And how do you grapple with that? What that it means be a for great the problem world. to have, right? Yeah, I'm yeah. It's certainly bit, a better yeah. conversation than some of my clients who, you know, maybe they're particularly dependent or tied in with schools and the school system. And when schools all went remote, then you know that that was an issue for some companies. And and that those are much much harder conversations to have. So in terms of what comes next? Do you have like, obviously you mentioned that your your firm worked with Wayfair, mm-hmm. the Wayfair decision, but do you have kind of like a, I don't want to say personal goal, because that seems weird to be like, what's the one <laughs> thing you aspire to? But you know, a lot of times when you talk to folks, they're always like, I want that one big case or that, you know, I mean, but your firms had that big case. So do you have like a, a thing that you're like, you know, what would be awesome is if I could do X, or if I could work with this company, or if I could work on this issue, do you have one of those? I don't think I would say issue or company. I would love to work on another Supreme Court case. The reason I came to the firm that I'm at, Brandon Isaacson, was for the realistic possibility of working on a Supreme Court case, a precedent setting tax matter. Right. And a year and a half after I joined the firm, we argued the Wayfair decision. So that, that you would say, you know, goal check. Um, right, right. But, but I was in the overflow room for that argument. I want to be at council table next time. <laughs> of course, so. yeah, obviously. You want, to be, you want to be first chair. No, that's awesome. The, the, speaking of women in the law, the, I, I want to be a, a, a woman who argues a Supreme Court case. I, I jokingly say, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's first Supreme Court argument that she gave as a counsel was a tax case. And I'm a tax lawyer, so clearly I'm Ruth Bader Ginsburg. <laughs> oh, so it's, it's, it's in the cards. Thank you so I much. I, I think this has been just a really great conversation about we covered a lot. We did we did women in tax, we did salt, we did uh 
mentorships. No, this is awesome. If people wanted to find you and you wanted to be found either on the web or on social media, where would you send them? Well, you can find me on LinkedIn. That's where I spend much of my efforts professionally and uh, working with other kind of women in law and women in tax. So Jamie Zell on LinkedIn. I talk about tax most of the time, but I talk about, you know, life as a mom and my reflections on gratitude. And and that's where I can be found and want to be found most of the time. (laughs) And I will be sure to put a link to that in the show notes. Thank you so much. This was terrific. Thanks, Kelly. It's a pleasure. I'd love to know what you thought of this episode. You can send an email with your feedback to podcast at taxgirl.com. And if you liked it, please share. You can find the audio of each episode at taxgirl.com. You can also subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite listening app so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening, because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't have to be.